Welcome to episode 209 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get 20% off one of my favorite things for truly taking charge of your health, including testing something we talk about all the time, your insulin levels. So to live your healthiest and longest life possible, you need to understand what's going on inside. Inside Tracker takes a personalized approach to health and longevity from the most trusted and relevant source that would be your body. By using data from your blood, DNA, and fitness trackers, Inside Tracker gives you personalized and science backed recommendations on things that you can take control of to optimize your health. What I love about Inside Tracker is that Inside Tracker tests provide optimal ranges, not conventional ranges, for over 40 biomarkers, including magnesium, vitamin D, testosterone, cortisol, ferritin, which is the storage form of iron that is rare for doctors to test, ApoB, three key female biomarkers, and something I am so excited about, Inside Tracker recently added insulin testing to their ultimate plan. Friends, I am thrilled about this. We talk about insulin all the time on this show. It is so relevant to your metabolic health and your lifespan. In particular, insulin tracking is an early warning sign for several chronic diseases and is a key indicator of energy optimization. It can really let you know if your diet, if your fasting is working for you, you want to test your insulin. It is so hard to get doctors to test insulin, and now you can do it with Inside Tracker. The thing I love most about Inside Tracker is that they have a strict science-backed approach to everything they do. If your specific biomarker level is unoptimized, Inside Tracker actually provides recommendations that are backed by dozens of peer-reviewed studies and personalized to you. This process was set in place by their founders that include experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, Tufts, and MIT. And for a limited time, our audience can get 20% off their ultimate plan, which includes testing that insulin when you sign up at insidetracker.com slash IF podcast. So if you're ready to get a crystal clear picture of what's going on inside your body, along with science-backed recommendations to optimize what's not working, then visit insidetracker.com slash ifpodcast. And one of the things I really love about InsideTracker is it helps you track all of your results, all of your tests over time, so you can see patterns, see your history. It makes predictions of where you'll be if you continue on your current trajectory. It is a game changer for making sense of your 
your labs. I am obsessed with Inside Tracker. Again, you can get 20% off their ultimate plan, including testing your insulin levels at insidetracker.com slash ifpodcast. And we will put all of this information in the show notes. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 209 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? I am fabulous and got a lot going on. What do you have going on? Well, you already know, <laughs> but I'm going to gonna share it here for the first time. Although, gosh, this is coming out. This is the April 19th episode. So we're three weeks ahead, approximately, recording it three weeks before it comes out. So by the time it comes out, 
a lot of listeners will already know this news because I'm announcing it officially tomorrow. Tomorrow is March 29th in the real world (laughs) because we're three weeks in the past here recording. But I am officially leaving Facebook tomorrow, March 29th. It's also Cal's birthday. He will be 23. That's just a coincidence. Wow. That's big. It is big. And I didn't make this decision lightly. And I know some people are going to wake up tomorrow and see my announcement and be like, what has just happened? Because, you know, I actually wrote a blog post about it and it's going to drop overnight. So for anybody who hasn't heard this news, or maybe you heard about it, but you didn't read my blog post yet, I want you to go to jenstevens.com, go to the blog post area, and it's called Changes in the Air. And unless I decide to call it something else between now and tomorrow when it when it goes live. But right now it's changes in the air. And I really poured my heart into that blog post. I'm going to try not to cry. Gosh, I feel so emotional about this. Like I feel the tears like welling up. And so I'm going to take a deep breath and try to try to not get emotional. But, you know, I've reflected on all the time. I've been on Facebook since 2008. Do you remember when you joined? Yes. I think we talked about this Yep, it was around 2008 for me as well. Okay. Well, you know, just like everybody else, I used it as a casual user. But then in 2015, when I started my first group, my usage really changed. And, you know, what's that they say on top of really long things, too long, didn't read, TLDR? You know what I'm talking about? TLDR, that little abbreviation? I know that abbreviation. I don't know what it means. (laughs) It means too long, didn't read. Or something like that. It's basically a one-sentence summary. Basically, I realized really not just recently, but over the past few years, I've realized that I haven't been fully present in my life because of Facebook. So it's been like this huge catch-22. Like, I love the work I've done on Facebook since 2015 with my intermittent fasting communities. I love it so much. Like, I love supporting members and helping them and providing a, a safe place for them to, you know, get together and form a community. And yet, 16 hours of my day, all the time of the day when I'm not asleep, it's in my mind. Like it never sleeps. Facebook never sleeps. Even if I'm sleeping, Facebook isn't sleeping. And so, you know, the pressure to be there and be in the groups and respond to everybody and the pending posts and it's heavy. So I've known for years, like I said, that I couldn't do this for the rest of my life. Like I could not spend 16 hours a day every day on Facebook. And, you know, in the past year, I've started a third podcast and I'm working on a new book. And I also want to have some time, you know, to talk to my husband or you know, whatever else I want to do. So I've just realized that that Facebook's got to go for my own mental well-being. Anyway, I encourage people to go find that blog post and read it all the way through because Facebook has just been such a part of my identity. It's what I do. It's, It's how I spend all my time. Like for the past week, knowing that this is coming, I've been purposely trying to put my phone down and like my brain is looking for it. Does that sound crazy? No, not at all. Like, I, I got to look, got to see what's, got to check. Are there pending posts? I'm like, no, stop, stop, stop doing that. 
So here's the part that's the hardest and the part that has literally kept me up at night. I have not slept well. Like I wasn't sure what I was going to do even, you know, a couple weeks ago. You know, I started the Delay, Don't Deny social network. That was multifaceted. Part of it was, of course, because as I've already shared, I was concerned about, you know, trusting my entire platform to Facebook, you know, everything I've built. But then I started thinking, do I really need to be on Facebook 16 hours a day? So this whole multifaceted, you know, moving off of Facebook to a new platform that's just us taking control of the platform, but also it's not a place where I need to be from the minute I wake up to the minute I go to bed. So I'm going to be able to check in periodically, like first thing in the morning after I get my coffee, I can spend some time there. Then later in the day, maybe I can go there again, but not feeling like I have to go every 10 minutes. I mean, it's almost like I feel like I'm withdrawing from a drug, Melanie. Yeah, no, it sounds like that combined with moving. Maybe. I also want to say the hardest part of this that I started to say, and then I got sidetracked, is the groups. You know, I've had these groups. The advanced group and the one meal a day group are the groups where, you know, where I started. The one meal a day group started in 2015. It's where I met you. I know. We have a whole community there that, you know, there's certain people that are, are well-loved in that community. But the advanced group, you know, that's group, it's about 30,000 members, and everyone there has read at least one of my books. And so that they are my people, and I love them. But I don't think that anyone realizes how much of my life it takes to run them. I just don't think that they do. Maybe they do. But maybe they don't. But it's not something I can turn over to moderators and say, all right, run the advanced group, run the one meal a day group. It's just too much. I mean, I, I can't ask volunteers to spend 16 hours a day managing these groups. So how does it look different, the management and all of that going forward? Well, I am actually archiving the advanced group and the one meal a day group. So what archiving means is... I click a button, and from that point going forward, nobody is able to post or comment or put a mad face on the fact that I just archived the group or cry face with their, their, you know, people are going to be sad. I get it. But no one can respond or comment or do anything. But the content is still there, which is so important to me. You can still go in and search your question. You've got a question about anything, you put it in the search bar, and old posts will come up, and you'll be able to read. There's still a huge resource of information. You can find success stories there. It's just kind of like it freezes it in time. You know, you want to see what people ate for dinner three months ago? It's still going to be there in the one meal a day group. We just aren't going to be adding any new content. So that's the hardest part. That's the part that's kept me up at night is, you know, how do I... You know the the song Hotel California? You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. That is how I have felt about Facebook. Like I've built this huge thing and now I am trapped by it. Like I'm I'm trapped and consumed and and it's a good thing, but it's you know, anything good can just be also too much. Does that make sense? So <sighs> I hope that people hear what I'm saying about it and how hard this decision was for me. But the main group, the Delay Don't Deny Intermittent Fasting Support Group, that group has over 300,000 members, and we are not closing that one down. But the moderators 
are going to continue to manage that one. You know, we changed the way that group was managed in the summer of 2020 when it got really clear that we couldn't manage 300,000 people. We were having over 1,000 posts a day. Did I ever tell the story about how I started crying when I was trying to make dinner? I think so. I don't know if I told it on the podcast or just to you, but there was one night when over the summer, like spring, maybe just over a year ago from today, when I was trying to make dinner, Chad said, is it time for dinner? And I'm like, yeah, I'll make dinner as soon as I can get these pending posts under control. So when I started, I don't remember the exact number. Let's say it was 32. I don't know. It was just, you know, 32 pending posts. So when you had the pending posts, you had to go in and you had to approve them and then you had to make a comment on them. Sometimes, though, you didn't need to approve them. Like if they were, can I have lemon in my water? You know, if we approved every one of those, that's all the feed would have been. So we would actually give personalized responses to those. We would decline them, but we would decline with feedback. So we would say, you know, sorry, lemon is not part of a clean fast. Please go check out, you know, blah, blah, blah resource. But it took a lot of time. For each post, we ha- we didn't just decline randomly. We gave feedback to everyone personally, or we would add comments. We spend a lot of time on those posts. So I started, we had, let's just say, like I said, 32. So I worked for about 20 minutes. And at the end of that 20 minutes, we had more posts than when I had started. We were up to like 35. And so I just burst into tears and said to Chad, I said, I can't keep this up. It's like, you know, trying to throw the ocean back in as the waves keep coming in. But tide is rising. I could not get the number of pending posts to zero so I could go cook dinner. Reminds me of what's that computer game where the blocks fall and you... Tetris? Yes. It was very much like Tetris. And so in June, we changed the way that group worked, and it made such a difference. We still provide support there in the daily Ask a Moderator thread, but we instead of having a thousand separate posts a day, people just come and they ask a question. Can I have lemon in my water? And we can answer it. So we are still providing support to people through that community. And I told the moderators, I said, as long as this provides you with joy and you love it, we will keep this group running indefinitely. And, you know, they pop in. They don't they don't go every 10 minutes like me. <laughs> they pop in. They answer the questions. And then they, you know, in between their lives when they have time. You know, we also have the Delayed on Tonight social network. And as I said, I am going to be there, but not every 10 minutes. You know, I'm, I'm in the 28-day fast start group where people who are new to intermittent fasting, and that's my love, is supporting people when they're getting started so they can come in and ask questions. I'll answer them all. And the Ask Jen group, people can ask me questions there. I'm really enjoying the personal interactions, but without feeling like I'm playing Tetris or trying to manage something that's unmanageable. Well, I'm excited for you. Well, you know, it, my heart's racing just talking about it, and will I sleep tonight? I don't know. But... Everybody, please just understand why I'm making these changes in my life. And, you know, one day I'm going to have grandkids and I'm not going to be that grandma who's like, okay, now it's time for me to look at Facebook again for the net, you know. (laughs) And I'm so grateful for all the years on Facebook and all of the people I've connected with. And, you know, the Delay Don't Deny social network is going to be smaller. You know, we have half a million combined members in the Facebook groups, half a million Combined members. It's insane. It's insane. And and I can't personally mentor half a million people as hard as I try and as much as I want to. You know, because the groups are so connected with me, I can't just walk away and leave them to, to go wild. Does that make sense? People don't realize how much careful moderation goes on behind the scenes. 
to make sure they're a positive and supportive community. And I can't just walk away and stop doing that. So they, they just can't, it can't keep going the way it was. Anyway, it's a big turning point. And I hope that people understand from my heart why I'm making these decisions. If they want to join us on the, the DDD social network, we'd love to have them. You know, don't feel pressured like you have to, but that's where I'll be, but just not 16 hours a day. <laughs> I will answer your question within 24 hours, <laughs> probably even sooner, but. <sighs> well, I'm excited for you. Tomorrow is a new dawn. It is. And I'm going to also not look at Messenger because I can just imagine some people aren't going to be happy with me. Yeah, I anticipate that happening. <laughs> but I mean, I, I just don't know how much support am I expected to provide for the rest of my life, 16 hours a day. I just can't. I can't physically and emotionally do it. Well, for listeners, the show notes for this episode will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 209. And we will put links to Jen's blog post so you can read that. We'll put links to her new social network. Yeah. Delay, don't deny, dddsocialnetwork.com. Okay. So you can join there. We have almost 3,000 members there already, but, you know, I don't want it to have half a million members. <laughs> I mean, maybe it will. I don't know. But they could just ask me questions and ask Jen and 28-Day Fast Start, and I could just focus on supporting those beginners and <laughs> answering those questions. Awesome. And then I will clarify, I still have my Facebook groups, so you can still join my Facebook groups. And you can even still join mine. I just won't be there. The Delay, Don't Deny Intermittent Fasting Support Group. You can ask the mods in the Daily Ask a Moderator thread, but you cannot ask Jen. Yes. <laughs> so there's that one. There's another place for asking Jen. Yes. There's that one. You still have the one for your other podcast? You know, we still have that group, but Sherry's going to manage it. I am taking Facebook off of my phone. I am not going to be checking in. It, it is not a place I'm going to be. I'm going to be more present in my life, like I said. I'm going to be intentional about the time that I spend on the Delay, Don't Deny social network. And I'm going to go there, and I'm going to you know, answer the questions that are for me, and I'm going to look around and spread cheer throughout the live feed and, and see what's going on. But because it doesn't have pending posts, nothing to be accepted, people are just there posting and living and doing it doesn't require the the degree of time for me on the admin side, if that makes sense. Yeah, 100%. Also, we've never had a reported post yet. <laughs> we have those all the time on Facebook. But well, we did have one reported post. I'm going to take that back. Someone made a joke about something, and people didn't understand it was a joke. But once they understood it wasn't a joke, there, no one reported it <laughs> anymore. I think I mentioned this last time, or probably not, because I don't know if we talked. Well, no, we talked about it a little bit. We were off air, maybe. My groups are still at a nice place where we don't really have issues. Like how many? How many people? So the main one is IF Biohackers, and we almost have nine thousand. Yeah, that's a good number. That's about how many we have in the Life Lessons podcast group. I hope it stays this way. Everybody is just so kind and understanding, and we just have very little drama and. You can talk about anything, biohacking, anything, diet, health, fitness, lifestyle. There's so many random questions. I'm waiting for it to get a little more dramatic. Yeah, but it's it's really, really great. Like the other day, somebody posted and they said, 
how they were a little bit overwhelmed because they don't understand what all the different acronyms for different things mean. And they just feel like they can't understand anything. And then it got like 20 comments and everybody was like, everybody's so nice. They were like, just ask and, you know, we'll tell you. And I don't want to give the impression that the advanced group is a hotbed of horribleness. It's not. It's an amazing group. And 99.9% of the interactions that go in on in there are amazing. And people are helpful and people are supportive. And I love being there. It's really more of the difficult situations occurred in the regular group before we changed the post process to have, you know, the Ask a Mod. That was where we had to put out a lot of fires. And the one meal a day group still sometimes goes a little rogue here and there. As much as we love them, we do. Sometimes people will pop up that have been there since 2016 and they're like, you know, something wacky will pop out. And we're like, where did you come from? <laughs> you know, they don't they don't know anything about us. They just have been there, maybe not coming and something weird will happen. But the advanced group has been amazing and I love them, which is why it is so hard to make this decision. That's why I lost the sleep over it because I both don't want to close the group down and archive it, but yet desperately need to for my mental health. That's the catch-22, and that's why it felt like the Hotel California. Yeah, that makes sense. The other two groups I have, because I have a Lumen, Biosense, CGM group, but I have really great moderators in there, and they, they mostly run that one. And then I have the Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare, which is still... It's like my little boutique group, so we're almost at a 1,000 members, but it's been great. Well, so for listeners, again, the show notes, we'll put links to everything, and I'm excited to see how things go. I'm excited for you. Well, I just really hope people are not just so mad at me and like, now I hate you forever, Jen. Jen, you're terrible. You're a bad person. Please don't think that. Haters going to hate. There's a lot of really wonderful people, so we can focus on that. Let's do. I've just loved this time, but it has been so much of my time. Shall we jump into everything for today? Yes, let's get started. All right. So to start things off, we have some feedback. This comes from Sarah. The subject is insulin testing. And Sarah says, hi, Jen and Melanie. I just got my fasting insulin tested for the first time. And I wanted to share with your other listeners how to do it easily and quickly. It's something I've wanted to do for a long time, but didn't want to go to the doctor and do the whole blood work panel and have to potentially argue with my doctor about why I wanted fasting insulin, etc. Can I pop in something really quick, Jen? Yes. I actually saw the doctor on Friday, I think, for just an annual checkup. The nurse that I was with, she was so receptive to testing everything that I wanted to test. So I got fasted insulin. When I went to test it, I went in like right before they closed at like five and to Quest or LabCorp, one of those places. And she was like, are you fasting? And I was like, yes. She was like, are you sure you're fasting? And I was like, yes. She was like, it's really late. And I was like, I know. Let me tell you what my job is. I have a podcast called the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. So guess what? I said, well, I practice intermittent fasting as a lifestyle. And she goes, what? And I, and I go, never mind. <laughs> so good times. But then they told me that I don't know why. They said the fasting insulin won't be accurate at that time. I don't know. I don't know. In any case, moving back to the question to Sarah's feedback. She says, a long time ago, Jen mentioned on the podcast that one of her friends was using walk-in labs and that's exactly what I did. I went to walkinlabs.com and I bought just the fasting insulin test. It was $25 from Quest Diagnostics and $40 from LabCorp. Then I just found a location near me, walked in, got my test, and the next day got my results. It was super duper easy and quick. 
On a more unfortunate note, my fasting insulin is 13.8. Yikes. I've been intermittent fasting at an average of 19 to 20 hours daily for almost four years, but my blood sugars are a little high in the 90s, low 100s, and I recently gained 20 pounds and have so far been unable to lose it. I'm going to do my best to go low carb for a while and see what happens. I reintroduced meat into my diet four months ago. After realizing I've been getting only about 20 to 50 grams of protein a day for the past three years, but I kept my other higher carb habits and I think those didn't mesh well with the new higher protein slash fat intake. The experiment continues. Very glad to finally have a fasting insulin measurement that I can track. Thanks for continuing to share your knowledge and wisdom on the pod. Alrighty. So do you have feedback about this, Jen? Well, yeah, 13.8 is high, although I'm not sure it might fall into the quote normal range. You know how they say that's normal, but it's really very far from optimum. That's what 13.8 would be. You want it to be down closer to five or six. The standard reference range, they say less than 25. But I think in Dr. Benjamin Bickman's book, he recommends less than six, I think. Yes. Yep. That's exactly right. And ideally even, I think like four or less. Mine's less than five. Mm -hmm. And the day that I got mine done, I had coffee and I shouldn't have. And I I didn't even pay attention to what I was doing. I was like, oh gosh, why did I just drink that coffee? So mine could actually normally be lower in the fasted state. But coffee, of course, causes your liver to dump out glycogen. And so when you have increased blood glucose, you may have some insulin go up to manage that. So if I ever do it again, I'm going to do it with zero black coffee. I'd be interested to see. But, you know, as far as, Sarah, as your your numbers go, even with all of those years of intermittent fasting, you're right to focus on diet. We've talked before about mastering diabetes. That's a different paradigm. So you could try it this way for a while with the the lower carb approach. And if you don't find that that improves it, you may want to try the um, mastering diabetes 180 way of managing it because, you know, they are finding a lot of success with this as well. Theirs is a low-fat, higher-carb approach. It sounds like she really upped her protein and fat, like she says, but she kept in all of her carbs as well. So right now she's basically high-carb, high-fat, high-protein, which I think that combination works for not that many people (laughs) for metabolic health, basically having all high of all of the macros. Well, it's certainly not going to help correct a problem. I mean, it works really well for me as far as the way that I eat day-to-day. And I'm certainly very healthy, but I'm not trying to lower my insulin. I'm not trying to lower my fat. Does that make sense? I'm at a great place. But if you know you've got something to work on, like if I knew I needed to lose some weight, I would do some changes to that. Yeah. I'm happy that she said she brought back meat and was trying to up her protein because she realized she was low in protein. Focusing on raising protein, in my opinion, and from a lot of the people I've interviewed and research that I've done is going to have the most probably beneficial metabolic effects as far as satiety and, you know, muscle maintenance and not being a fuel substrate that encourages a state of energy toxicity, like Marty Kendall talks about. But then next to the protein, you know, you basically have two options between the fat and the carbs and gravitating to one or the other can work wonders for a lot of people for 
getting to a place of better metabolic health. So since she wants to try low carb and she hasn't really tried it yet, I definitely encourage that. So try that, see how it goes. And then if it doesn't work, you can try the flip side and try the high carb, low fat, lower fat, but high protein approach. So I think there's a lot of potential here in making changes. Yeah, I think so too. That's really great to know about how easy it was for her to get the fasting insulin test. I know. I love that part too. I think that is going to really help other people. And then people can get the test and then see when you know, then you can you can address that. Because, you know, she said that she had recently gained 20 pounds and hasn't been able to lose it. So this high fasting insulin level can certainly help explain some of that. We hear all sorts of things from people. They'll be like, you know, I was unable to lose weight no matter what I did. And then I found out I had blah, blah, blah. I mean, you could fill in the blank. Anything from breast cancer, we've heard people say, you know, I couldn't lose any weight. And then I found out I had breast cancer. And then we addressed that. You know, our bodies are doing other things that we don't always know about. You know, high fasted insulin level. You could have so many things going on behind the scenes. So the inability to lose weight is a signal that there's something else wrong. Mm -hmm. All right. Shall we jump into some questions? Yes. All right. We have a question from Catherine, and the subject is gallbladder and fasting. Hi, Melanie and Jen. Hello from Australia. I feel like we should read these in an accent, although I can't. I can't. Go for it. (laughs) Go for it. I don't know why, but whenever I try to have a foreign accent, it sounds like I'm in Jamaica. Oh, that's where you end up. I can only do a Jamaican accent, apparently. Like, hello, man. I don't know. That's all I can do. I cannot do an Australian accent or an English accent or an Irish accent. So I'll just read it like myself. All right. She says, firstly, thank you so much for all the work you both do in helping the rest of us learn about fasting and health. I've been fasting for about 18 months now, mostly around 18.6, but sometimes less and sometimes more have plateaued in the past six months, but I recognize I probably need to tweak the old eating patterns. My current issue is that I have gallstones diagnosed some time ago. Issues started several years ago. I just turned 60, so I'm unfortunately right in the age bracket where old galley can start playing up, and this has been happening to me lately. I've been reading up about this, and there seems to be some research suggesting fasting is not great for the gallbladder. That makes me very sad as no way do I want to give up the fasting as I usually feel a lot better than I used to. Less general inflammation, more energy, and of course that initial weight loss, which I've managed to maintain even throughout COVID lockdown. I'd also like to shed at least another 5 to 10 kilos in order to get back into my healthy weight range. So my question is, what are your thoughts about fasting and the gallbladder? Be interesting to hear your take on this issue and to know if others with gallbladder issues have success or issues with fasting. Is there perhaps a threshold of fasting duration where the gallbladder may be more severely impacted? Whilst I'd like to increase my fasting time to help get the weight loss moving again, I don't want to overdo it and upset old galley. I love that. That makes me smile. The gallbladder old galley or golly. Maybe it's old golly. Be keen to hear your thoughts. Thanks for reading. Cheers, Kath from Victoria, Australia. All right. So Kath, thank you so much for your question. So this idea has been popularized by Dr. Walter Longo at the University of Southern California, fight on, which by the way, I don't think I told you, Jen, did I tell you he's coming on my show? I'm not sure if you did. 
You got so many people coming on the show. I can't keep track. I'm not surprised. Well, I've been emailing his assistant. He's a little bit harder to lock down, but we've been emailing and talking about what he wants to talk about. But in any case, Jen and I actually interviewed him a long time ago. 17, right? 2017? Maybe 18, was it? I don't know. It was a while ago. It was when his first book came out or his only book. It's when his book came out. (laughs) In any case, he's the creator of the fasting mimicking diet, but he does a lot of research in fasting mimicking diets and fasting in humans and is considered one of the go-to authorities on fasting as just as far as from like a research perspective. And he is very vocal, at least last time I checked, about intermittent fasting's potentially negative role on the gallbladder and encouraging gallstones. I'm definitely going to ask him about this when I interview him for sure. I was shocked. I thought this would be way easier to find research on than it was. I was like, oh, I'm going to go to Google Scholar. I'm going to find all these fasting studies about the gallbladder and there will be an answer. I found very little information. Yeah. Can I just summarize it? And there's two two things that I know are true about the gallbladder and fasting. And Sure. <laughs> Number one, or these are two risk factors. Let me rephrase it. There are two risk factors for having gallbladder trouble. Low fat diet. If you were overweight or if you lose that weight, <laughs> those are two. I mean, there are, there are more. But two risk factors are being overweight and losing the weight, no matter how you lose it. Mm, that's really interesting. You're like darned if you do and darned if you don't. Everything I've read, if you're overweight, you're more likely to have gallbladder trouble. If you're actively losing weight, you are more likely to have gallbladder trouble. So you cannot win when it comes to the gallbladder. That's my research in a nutshell. Or never have gained it to start with. But that's, you know, you can't go back in time and and not have gained it. It's really interesting because so the whole idea of gallstones, I, I feel like they come up in so many different books and authorities and researchers I talk to. And depending on who you're talking to, they'll say the cause of the gallstone is a different thing. So like, I think when I interviewed Richard Jacoby recently, it was, you know, sugar. When I interviewed Susan Owens, it was, or Sally Norton, one of them. They both work with oxalates. It was oxalates. When I interviewed Dr. Campbell McBride for the GAPS diet, she thinks it's related to, oh, I don't even remember bacteria or like there's all these different thoughts about what it might be. In any case, what we do know, I think what most people agree on is that bile is responsible for flushing things through the gallbladder. Now I'm going on tangents, I feel, but a lot of people on the low fat diet say to avoid fat because it will, you know, clog up the gallbladder or lead to gallstones. But on the flip side, it's very possible that if you're on a very low fat diet, then you're not flushing through. And so you're more more likely to get stones actually. In any case, coming back to fasting, I was able to find like one study from 1980, but it was very, very interesting. And it actually both supported exactly what Walter Longo says, and it completely went against it. I think he recommends not fasting more. Is it more than 15 hours? I think that he says, well, he always says 12. 12. Okay. Well, that works too. That works too for this study. Which is, okay, never mind. Don't get me started. I'm, I'm biting my tongue. Okay. So that actually works. Are you ready? So the study is called Effects of Fasting on the Composition of Gallbladder Bile. And it was talking about the level of cholesterol 
that is dumped from the liver into bile, depending on fasting, with the idea being that higher cholesterol dumped into the bile is more likely to cause gallstones. Okay, so they tested patients fasting at 10 hours fasted, 15 hours fasted, and 20 hours fasted. Do you want to guess what they found? No. (laughs) So they found that... So 10 hours fasted, it was a certain number, and it was very consistent between all the patients. 15 hours fasted, there was more cholesterol. So the bile was more likely to be a risk factor for gallstones. But at 20 hours fasted, it had gone down. So it seems that around 15 hours, it seems like there might be like a transitory increase in cholesterol and bile into the gallbladder up until around somewhere around 15, 16 hours. And then after that, it actually starts going down, which is fascinating because, you know, Walter Longo says, okay, maybe it's like 12 hours, don't fast more. And this is all me just going on one study from 1980. So keep that in mind. But just from that information, it seems like if you fast just a little bit, (laughs) you might get, and by a little bit, I mean between you know, 12 and 15 hours, you might get a transitory dump of cholesterol into your gallbladder. But if you fast a little bit longer, closer to like a one meal a day situation, potentially a 16, eight, I don't know, they they didn't test at 16 hours. So I don't know exactly when it started going down, but it sounds like if you're fasting the way a lot of our listeners probably are, that you actually might have less of a chance of gallstones with that fasting window. So I thought that was fascinating. Again, 1980, but I said I was biting my tongue. I'm going to unloosen it a little bit. (laughs) I unbit it. You know, he was, he changed his tune after his fasting mimicking diet came out. And before that, he, I heard him on a podcast talking about how he does his intermittent fasting and then he changed his, what he was recommending. And you were unable to find strong support of no one should fast beyond 12 hours a day or your gallbladder is going to explode or something. There was no good science for that, right? The purpose of that study, they did mention that. I guess the research prior to that was contradictory and that shorter fasting did seem to increase the risk of gallstones, but longer fasting didn't. And so they were positing that this is, it's actually because there's like this transitory curve. But what I'm saying is you didn't find this wealth of information that solidly pointed to this is a problem. I think there was one saying that women who skip breakfast are more likely to have gallstones. Yeah, that's the weight loss tie-in, I would bet. To answer your question, I thought, because he's so vocal about it, I was like, oh, I was like, there's going to be research. He's going to have published studies about it. Like, there's just going to be information, but there's not a lot. There's not much. And a lot of it is correlational, like you said. And that is the part. That's when I got a little upset with what he was talking about. Like, he started talking about... It was right when when his book came out, maybe, or right after that, or at some point he started making the podcast circuit and telling people on the podcast circuit not to fast beyond 12 hours, which was shocking. Everybody's like, gosh, Walter Longo is telling people not to fast after 12, more than 12 hours, but you could buy his fasting mimicking protocol, which is way better than actual fasting because fasting is dangerous. And then he started talking about you know, all these the study and skipping breakfast led to heart attacks. And I went and looked up that study that he cited. 
That is not what that study said at all. And I lost a lot of respect that day because he, as a hard researcher, understands what studies do and don't tell us. And and you don't go around saying, you know, skipping breakfast causes heart attacks based on a correlational study of people who are unhealthy and skipping breakfast. And then, you know, do you know what I mean, Melanie? And so that made me like, okay, <laughs> you know, he's scaring people off about doing intermittent fasting and using really poor evidence to do it. You know, instead say, you know what, I've developed the fasting mimicking diet. I think it's amazing. Let me tell you why. But don't knock intermittent fasting with poor evidence. Because I I do still, all that aside, you respect him. Yeah, I do really respect him. So all of that aside, he's done a lot of really great research and studies. So I am really excited to talk to him. But I I definitely am going, like, like these are the things I'm going to talk to him about. And normally when I book the guests, they don't really communicate with me much beforehand about what they want to talk about, but his assistant has been very vocal about what he wants to talk about specifically. So I'm really interested to see what we talk about and I'm going to talk about this. (laughs) Can I tell you something that's kind of funny? I don't know if I should say this out loud. Say it and then I'll let you know. (laughs) (laughs) Let me know if I should. They actually approached me for him to be on intermittent fasting stories within the past year. Oh, really? Yes. And I replied and said, I'm sorry. I've heard him on a lot of podcasts recommending against intermittent fasting. So I'm not really sure why we'd li- we would like to hear his intermittent fasting story. Oh, you said that. What did they say back? I don't think they replied, but I turned him down for intermittent fasting stories because it didn't seem like a good fit. Anyway, was it okay to say that out loud? I think it's okay. Yeah. I will say one other thing, Melanie. You know, we've had a half a million people in the intermittent fasting communities, right? on Facebook. And if fasting, I mean, these are the things I know that will happen. You're very likely to have an increase in your overall cholesterol levels after you begin fasting. That is true. Yeah. And that's something people don't talk about enough, I don't think. But my point is, is that these are the things that we know because they come up over and over and over. Guess what does not come up over and over and over? Gallstones. Gallstones. I think it comes up every now and then, but I would tend to think the rarity at which it comes up actually is is lower than the prevalence of gallstones in the general population. Does that make sense? I mean, there's a high level of gallbladder issues in the general population especially among the target group of people that are in my Facebook groups. We have, you know, mostly women over 40, 50 in that age group. We're a very large group of people in that age range that often have the gallbladder issues. So if fasting made gallbladder issues worse, I would think that we would be overrun with posts about it. And instead, the number of posts we get are few and far between and seem like a smaller percentage of the population than would be in any normal population of people. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. They do pop up from time to time, just like here with Kath's story, but they happen in the regular population. So I feel like if fasting led to really increased gallbladder problems, we would see a lot more of it. The vague general idea is twofold, because I realized I was focusing on the liver dumping cholesterol into the bile while fasting. But I think the main idea that's posited is that your gallbladder is becoming stagnant while fasting. And so things are accumulating and creating the stones. 
<laughs> literally I was trying to find information. I couldn't find information because I was trying to find like if Walter had studies, but I couldn't find anything. But now whenever I think of old content on the internet, I'm going to think of your Facebook group, but I found like this old Twitter thread. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> I found like an old Twitter thread for, for Peter Atia and all his people. And they're asking him what he thought about this. And he was just like, no, <laughs> he's like, I haven't seen any evidence really to support this. We haven't. And I really feel like, like I said, with the cholesterol, every day there was someone saying, I just had my blood work done and my cholesterol is up. So we know that that is common because we see it. Or like, I just started fasting and my cycle's a little wacky. We see that all the time. So we know what is very, very common. We are, we are not a study, but we are very much a anecdotal group of evidence. You know, we, we got a lot of info. <laughs> I will make a suggestion though for Kath, and that is if you are struggling with gallstones, it's controversial because like I said at the beginning, a lot of people will say, oh, you need to avoid fat to avoid gallstones. But I personally think keeping a, at least like a small amount of fat in your diet to keep the gallbladder flushing can be pretty important. Like if you're doing a low fat diet, I don't know what type of diet she's eating, but if you're doing a low fat diet, I think that's often a risk factor for, for gallstones and people. If everybody hears that we got a storm, there've been some really bad storms around the Southeast and they just finally hit Augusta. It's weird. The area I'm in, I'm in Atlanta, but just the city I'm in, for some reason, I don't know if it's the elevation or we rarely get the actual storms, like my little area. It's very strange. Where we are near the river, the weather tends to follow a certain like path and, and the river. The, the shape of the land really does influence the weather a lot. Majorly. I grew up in Memphis, though. Oh, my goodness. Talk about thunderstorms. We got a ton. I miss those. I miss those. All right. Shall we answer one more question? Yes. Okay. So story about this question. We've actually answered this question before, but whatever episode it was in originally cuts off and... Somewhere along the line in the many, many times we have changed hosts, we lost that original episode. So people have asked us so many times, what was our answer to this question? So our assistant actually was like, maybe you should just answer it again. So that's so funny. What episode was it? I don't even know. I didn't realize that's what happened to it. Yeah. The episode cuts off in half or something. Okay. And people are like, what? And we get questions a lot about what our answer was and we're like, we don't know. We don't remember. <laughs> so our assistant, Sharon, was like, maybe you should just re-answer it. As if it's brand new, because we might say new things. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, and then I can just tell them to check out this episode. So that's what we're doing right now. <laughs> Hi, friends. I'm about to tell you how to get an exclusive discount on one of my favorite products for truly upgrading your health on a cellular level. So the new year is upon us and it's often a time where people are really trying to instill new habits and really upgrade their health. There's something I have been using for years, not just at the new year, literally every single day of my life. I am not making that up. Even when I travel, I have a way to address it then, which I will tell you about. And it's something that is so easy and feels amazing. That is red light and near infrared therapy. Okay, so friends, you could go somewhere and pay a lot of money to do red light near infrared therapy sessions, or you could just bring it to your home and use it every single day. 
That's what I do. I've been using Juve Red and Near Infrared Light Therapy devices for so long. There are so many clinically proven benefits of red light therapy. That includes improving your skin. Yes, you really will notice it. Faster muscle recovery, reduced pain and inflammation, enhanced sleep, and so much more. I use it in the morning and evening as ambient light because it actually mimics the setting and rising sun. And then I sort of run it throughout the day as well to help combat all of the blue light that we're exposed to, which can have a negative effect on our health. Whenever I have muscle pain, I shine Juve on the muscle. For me, it has made the pain go away instantly. And then for chronic pain, when I do continued sessions, it's made it dissipate. One of my good friends who is a doctor uses these devices on his, shall we say, manhood for benefits there. Yes, it can help in that department as well. I honestly could not imagine my life without Juve. You will just feel so good using these devices. People also post all the time in our Facebook group of their pets gravitating towards the Juve because intuitively they just know that it's good for them. The reason Juve can address so many things related to health is because it actually affects our cells on the mitochondrial level. Basically, it makes those cells perform better. And when those cells are performing better, everything just works better. That's why, yes, Juve can help with your energy as well. I've been recommending Juve specifically for years because the quality of their devices are the best. Their modular design allows for a variety of setup options to give you flexibility. The treatments are so easy. You can do them in as little as 10 minutes, or you can be using it all throughout the day like I do. All you have to do is relax and let your body take in the light. They also have their Juve Go, which you can travel with. Yes, that is how I really do use this every single day. That Go is also great for targeting specific areas of your body, like hurting joints or sore muscles. Honestly, friends, health doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be complicated. If you're looking to enhance your health and wellness this new year, start with what matters, which is your cells. And Juve has an amazing offer just for our audience. You can go to juve.com slash ifpodcast and use the coupon code ifpodcast to get a discount on your qualifying order. Again, that's j-o-o-v-v.com forward slash ifpodcast to get an exclusive discount on your order. Pick up a Juve today. Some exclusions apply. I really hope you guys can experience Juve. It really is one of my favorite things. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. So the original email was from Celeste and the subject was crashing when my window opens. And Celeste said, I'm very new to IF. I've been doing 18.6 for about a week and listening to your podcast in the mornings as I get ready for the day. I typically open the window at noon for lunch and then eat dinner before 6 p.m. I'm not eating terribly, I don't think. For lunches, I have something left over from the night before, like broccoli, chicken, ground turkey, taco salad, or brown rice with a chicken something. However, about 30 minutes to an hour after eating, I feel like I just downed a pizza and a large ice cream and I feel a complete crash. Is this something that will improve with time or am I eating the wrong things? I keep hearing Jen say no foods are off limits, so I'm not sure why I'm feeling my great morning energy disappear after eating. So Celeste, first of all, I want to say you're very new to IF and feelings like this are a lot more pronounced in the beginning. Like during the adjustment phase, you're going to feel all sorts of wacky ups and downs with your energy levels, both during the fast and after you eat. You know, your body is learning how to do a new thing. You're not metabolically flexible. You're probably not tapping into your fat stores very well during the fast. And your body is not great at shifting back and forth between fuel sources, between you know the fed state, the fasted state. So that's when you have a lot more weird energy slumps and and stuff like that happening. That being said, 
I never feel as energetic after I eat as I do during the fast. And that's because, you know, during the fast, you know, I'm running on ketones increasingly as the day goes on. As the day gets longer and my fast is longer, you know, I have more mental clarity and more energy. And then after I eat and my body shifts fuel sources, I feel more relaxed and calm and less productive. You know, I like to use this same analogy all the time. Think about lions after they feast. What do they do? They sleep. Think about Thanksgiving dinner. What does everybody do after Thanksgiving dinner? You're all really tired. That's because digestion takes a lot of work. Now, I don't completely crash after my dinner. And as your body becomes more metabolically flexible, you also should not just totally crash. You'll feel better, but you're not going to feel as energetic. I agree. (laughs) That's the sort of response that I have as well. That's actually why I like eating later. It actually makes me tired and it helps me sleep. The thing I'm wondering about is like, is the feeling, is it tiredness? Just like you feel like you ate a big meal and you feel satiated and nourished, but you're tired. Or is it just when I hear like pizza and ice cream, I think more of a, like a not good feeling. And maybe I'm getting a little bit esoteric. What I'm wondering is, is it literally just the feeling of a lack of energy or is it also the feeling of inflammation and reacting to food and an uncomfortable feeling? And I know that's, it can be a little bit vague or a little bit unclear about discerning between those two different things. But if it's just the the tiredness and the digestion and everything, then I don't think that's necessarily a problem. And it's something that may or may not change depending on how you continue. But if it is a different feeling of discomfort and brain fog and that sort of feeling, then I would also look at the food choices and see if the foods are or are not working for you specifically. That's my only other thought about it. Yeah. I definitely think that's important as you go on. Just during the adjustment phase, it's just not the time to feel like that's how you're going to feel every all the time. True. So by now, I'm pretty sure that Celeste is adjusted. Celeste, email us back. Follow up. We would love that. Follow up. Let us know how it's going, if it's gotten better. Shall we answer one more question? Yes. Amber says, subject 15-hour fast question mark. Hello, ladies. Thank you so much. I love this podcast and each of yours individually and listen to all three regularly. My mother has had great success with intermittent fasting, and I have as well, but has some struggles and questions. I exercise at a rigorous boot camp three to four times a week. I have diabetes in my family and feel reading Jason Fung's obesity code as well as Jen's books have been very helpful at lowering my insulin by lowering my number of feedings each day. I strive to fast every day, but I also have struggles. I love to eat with my coworkers, and also my family enjoys an evening meal together, too. I skip breakfast and sometimes lunch. I try to fast 20 to 24 hours on Sundays and Wednesdays because of my schedule, but most other days it's only 15 hours. I feel great, and workouts are great, and I feel like it has to be lowering my overall insulin, but am I missing out on benefits because I only fast 15 hours most days? All right, Amber, thank you so much for your question. I think what you're doing sounds great. (laughs) Like, especially, so I think 15 hours is great, especially if you're feeling great, you're seeing all of the benefits and you're exercising at a rigorous boot camp three to four times a week. I mean, that's, that's a lot, 
right there. You know, a lot of people do find just fasting without even that intensive exercise. Oh, and then on top of that, you're also doing a few 20 to 24 hour fasts. I mean, if anything, some people in your situation, it might with the exercise, it might be too much. I'm not saying it's too much, but I'm saying she's wondering if she's not fasting enough, but for a lot of people, everything that's, that she's doing might be the high end of what they even should be doing. So I think it sounds like it's working great for you. Jen, what do you think? Well, it just depends, you know, what benefits she's looking for. She says, is she missing out on benefits? Maybe, it, depending on what benefits you, you're looking for. Like, for example, you're not getting into peak fat burning time if you only fast 15 hours most days. But on the flip side, if you're happy with your weight, then maybe you don't need to get into peak fat burning time. So that's that's the part. We don't have really enough information to know what benefits she's looking for. If you're looking for increased autophagy, you're going to have some increased autophagy at 15 versus, you know, if you got up and ate breakfast. But if you really want to have a little more increased autophagy during the day, you may want to go a little longer. She's also doing boot camp three to four times a week, and that's going to be really supportive of autophagy. I don't know if she's doing it fasted. We don't know. So there's just still a bunch of questions. So she's lowered her insulin. That's really good. But we just don't know. If she's at a very healthy weight where she feels great and not trying to lose weight and this feels like a great lifestyle and her rhythm is good and the exercise time and the fasting time, then she doesn't need to change a thing. But if she's not seeing what she wants to see as far as progress or goals or health, then I would tweak it. Only Amber can answer that question based on her goals. This may be just the right amount of fasting for her, but it might not be. Yeah. Should we do one more? Sure. We're like covering up like crazy today. And I talked for a hundred years at the beginning. I know. I'm impressed. I feel like, and we talked about Walter Longa stuff for a long time. I feel like time is weird on this episode. (laughs) One more question from Jennifer. The subject is long-term intermittent fasting. Jennifer says, hi, Melanie and Jen, your intermittent fasting podcast is the best thing about Monday mornings. Thank you both for your wisdom. Within the last month, I have listened to two podcasts on fasting in which the speaker has said that eventually after two to three years, intermittent fasting stops working and that your body stops losing fat and or maintaining fat loss. The experts said that bodies become adapted to whatever we do. And both of you have said this too about fasting protocols and that eventually your body will react against this adaptation by gaining weight. Both podcasters stated that intermittent fasting only works in the short term. While both of you have proven this wrong in your own lives, I wonder if you could address and refute this claim to make me feel better about my long-term plan, which is to intermittent fast forever. Thanks for your insights on this, Jennifer. I'm going to give you a short answer and then the long answer. The short answer is no. (laughs) You like that one? Oh, Lordy. I just love when the experts who are not intermittent fasters like to talk about what's going to happen with the people who are intermittent fasting when they really just don't know. I hit my goal weight in 2015, and it is now 2021. And through that time, I went through menopause also. And this morning, my shape of scale shows that my shape of age is 18. Isn't that wacky? It's based on my body composition. I'm 18 years old. So I will say that, no, 
that they are wrong about that it is impossible to maintain fat loss thanks to intermittent fasting. You know, I've been in these communities for a long, long time and, you know, since 2015. And the only time I've ever seen people having trouble with weight regain has been over the pandemic. A lot of people all of a sudden who had been maintaining very well all of a sudden had a little weight gain after the pandemic. Did you know, Melanie, that the average weight gain was something like 29 pounds for adults? Do you listen to Joe Rogan today? I don't. I don't. Yeah, Mark Sisson was just on Joe Rogan and they were talking about, I just listened to that statistic right before this. Like, because everybody was talking about it all, all over the place, that the average American gained 29 pounds over the pandemic. So we saw some of this in the intermittent fasting community. So some people just didn't gain weight, but if you did gain weight, that was the average, I think, regardless. That's not the way I saw it set, but that doesn't mean that the way I saw it was correct. You know how when you play the game of telephone, by the time you get around the circle, it's completely different? I did hear people say, repeating that, that the average person gained 29 pounds. But just because I heard people saying that doesn't mean that's really true. (laughs) So whatever it is, this is the only time in the history of managing Facebook support groups that we suddenly had people not maintaining their weight. But you know what most of them have done? They've corrected it since then because it was because we were all baking sourdough bread and sweet rolls and cookies and cocktail day was every day. And we weren't outside and we're not exercising, lost our jobs, stress. It's basically everything for weight gain and it all happened at one time. Cornucopia of unpleasantness. So other than that, (laughs) let's just put that to the side. Pretend like 2020 didn't happen. My honesty pants got a little tighter. But again, right this minute, my waist measurement, because I'm, you know, I keep up with my waist measurement. It's at the lowest it's ever been. So I have not been slimmer in my adult life ever maintaining it in in a period of time. And I'm 51 years old and I've been through menopause in the past year. So our bodies do become adapted to what we do, but that doesn't mean that you're then suddenly going to start to crazy gain weight because you're adapted. Being adapted doesn't make you suddenly crazy gain or lose weight. Now, if I started eating all day long every day, I would probably gain weight. But as long as I continue intermittent fasting... I'm not going to. Of course, prior to intermittent fasting, I was crazy gaining weight. So whatever has happened with my body, I am a thousand times more healthy than I was in 2014 when I weighed 210 pounds. Even if it was true that, you know, my body changed and no longer, you know, whatever, all this period of time has been so much healthier than than if I hadn't lost the weight. So I really don't know why the experts would say that. Like what they're trying to convince you not to even try it. Don't even try it. It's helpless. If that's the case, why even try to lose weight at all? But we can lose weight and we can keep it off. And I don't want you to let those people get inside your head. Yeah. For anybody doing a dietary protocol, fasting, whatever they're doing, if there becomes a point where they lose a certain amount of weight where, you know, the body perceives it as not being adequate body fat and or they're eating a diet that the body perceives as not enough food and nutrition, that's going to be most likely an inevitable response of the body adapting or, you know, wanting to hold on to weight. Intermittent fasting does not necessitate that. Like they seem like they're the same thing as intermittent fasting, but they're not because they can go with intermittent fasting, but they don't have to. Right. An overly restrictive intermittent fasting lifestyle is not recommended by either me nor by Melanie. 
Yeah. So the, the two things I'm saying is like, like Jen just said, the overly restrictive diet or the body reaching a point that's too low for, for what the hypothalamus feels it should be at. So those are not synonyms with intermittent fasting. And it's funny, you mentioned that, that they were wrong about that. And my initial response was, oh, I don't ever say anybody's wrong. But then I thought, well, actually it is wrong because some people, I don't know exactly what they said, but if they said it's impossible to maintain, you know, a weight with intermittent fasting, I mean, that is wrong because we see it all the time. So yes. I just wonder, you know, what stops working? Autophagy doesn't stop working. Mark Matson has been living an intermittent fasting lifestyle for, I don't know, what, over a decade now? And he's a neurological researcher and wrote the article in the New England Journal of Medicine that came out in 2019 that got everyone so excited about the health benefits of intermittent fasting. He's one of the premier experts, and he does it. I mean, so I don't think all these people that study it would do it. The more you read about it, the more you learn about it, the more you want to do it. So I think people just like make things up. I think some people can do intermittent fasting, but then they also might... They might stop doing it. Or they might be more lax. It's the flip side. They might actually still be able to maintain or lose weight without doing what they perceive to be as strict as they need to be all the time. So the opposite could also be true. You might be able to not be doing all the fasting all the time and have some days off and still maintain and lose weight as well. You're saying your maintenance protocol could be more relaxed than your weight loss protocol. That might be possible. But if you relax all the way down to not doing it anymore, <laughs> ever, then you're probably going to regain the weight. But that's the thing. I would not want to stop doing intermittent fasting for the health benefits alone, but I also feel great and I'm, you know, maintaining the weight loss for the first time in my whole adult life. None of the other things led to lasting weight loss that I did. None of them. Not one. Only intermittent fasting. So... You know, yeah, it's my study of one, but we'll take it. Yeah. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go, you can submit your own questions to the podcast, just directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. You can follow us on Instagram. I'm Melanie Avalon. Jen is Jen Stevens. I love Instagram. Oh, can I tell you something very exciting? Yes. I was on Instagram the other day, and I went to see what Tim Spector was posting. And you know how when you go to someone's page and it says, follow back? Is he following you? Yes! But I was not following him, but I followed him back. It said, follow back. And I was like, oh, my God, because Tim Spector is one of my heroes, obviously, and Mark Matson too. I don't even know if he's on Instagram, but I'm going to go look. But <laughs> I was like, he knows who I am. Anyway. That is really exciting. I love that feeling. It was exciting. It was so exciting. I just followed him on Instagram and it recommends following Zoe. That's funny. Yeah. I don't follow Zoe yet, but maybe I should. I don't know. All right. Well, anything from you, Jen, before we go? Nope. Everybody check out my blog post if you need to read something. JenStevens.com. Change is in there. Perfect. Well, I'm excited for you. Thank you. And I will talk to you next week. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.